The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Good. Good to see you. Yes, you too. Father, any uh, prayer requests to be on the program tonight? Well, always. We have... Uh... I'll give you the last names. Uh, I'll let you imagine the last names. God knows who I'm asking you to pray for when I ask you to pray for for Joe and Bernie. Um, both of them have had heart problems, and one is even now in the hospital, hopefully recovering. The other is finally home, but still suffering. And little child, Blaze, and uh, well, there are literally hundreds of intentions on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. <clears throat> so I ask everyone to please... Uh, Keep all those good souls in your prayers. Uh, they, they ask because they know we pray. <clears throat> because they know you pray and they can count on you to, uh, to ask God to have mercy on them. And of course, in the process of seeking mercy for others, we also obtain it for ourselves too. As our Beatitudes cup explains so well, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. So please do pray for all of those in need of those prayers right now, especially those urgently, uh, in need, because they're suffering some great hardship or great adversity. Okay. Mm -hmm. well, thank you, Father. Uh, on, on last week's program, Father, we spent some time discussing the uh, topic of, of raising children <coughs> in, in today's world, raising, raising traditional Catholic children. And uh, that program received a lot, of, um, a lot of good feedback. We had a lot of uh, favorable comments mm -hmm. in regards to that topic, Father, and um, we kind of mentioned that we might talk about that a little bit more, and we... Uh, mm -hmm. Thought it might be fitting, especially today on the, the feast day of St. Nicholas, um, to, to spend a little bit more time on that subject. And I know, Father, some of our viewers um, in, in particular wanted to know, um, you talked about raising children who, who, uh, who honor the, the kingship of Christ. They, they accept Christ as, as their king. Um, <clears throat> any, any more practical advice, Father, that you could give to parents attempting to raise traditional Catholic children in today's world and raise them so that they... Um, are a member of that uh, of that that kingdom of Christ, and that they actually honor Christ as their king. Any particular advice that you could give in that realm, Father? Well, the church has referred to the raising of children as the artus artium, the art of arts, the artus. Got to roll those arts. Artus artium, the art of arts is the formation of a children of a child's soul. Uh, St. John Bosco, um, saint of modern times in the 1800s, um, dedicated his life to that, as you know, but there are many others, too, <clears throat> who throughout history uh, really gave their lives to the formation of, of youngsters and their good consciences. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there are those sculptors who labor for a lifetime to produce some masterwork, a painter, um, an architect, you know, they they want to produce something of surpassing beauty and majesty. When you think about it, all of these things of marble, and steel, glass, they really amount to nothing uh, in terms of eternity. Um, only the only good that can pass the uh, into eternity will be the good that they do. The result of all that effort. And the edifying uh, lesson that, that they give for us. And so only in the souls of human beings, who are, which are immortal, only those souls and the benefit that we have received from all this other labor, right, of, of the arts, only the good uh, that it does for the soul will actually survive this world. This world is destined for uh, destruction, as you know. <clears throat> So one may labor lifetimes to produce some kind of great work of art, 
some some work of music or sculpture or, or drama or anything. But the only thing that will survive uh, into eternity will be the good that it has done in the human soul. Uh, so the truly the art of all the arts is the formation of the soul, and notably the souls of the children. Why? Because that innocence is there. And as our Lord says, there is such a terrible punishment for those who would corrupt the innocence of a child. Uh, but we can learn from that also that there's a tremendous reward for those who contribute to the innocence of a child, uh, build upon it, fortify it, right? Even sanctify it. <clears throat> this is the role of the parent. To take the, the innocence of the children who are given to them. And of course, their children are, are conceived in original sin. We know that. But the parent's uh, first thought is to have the child baptized. Um, they, they bring a child into the world as a child of, of course, sinners. And the child himself or herself is, in fact, conceived in original sin. Uh, so the, the parents want to be sure that the child has the, uh, the, uh, the, the grace of God in the soul through baptism. And uh, that's the first thought a parent has. And so a parent provides for the baptism of the child to receive uh, sanctifying grace. And um, that makes the child uh, not just their child, the child of sinners, but it makes the child a child of God. Their child becomes a child of God when the child is baptized. And it has not only merely human life, it has now a supernatural life of God in the soul. And so that they, they actually, even from those earliest moments of life, once they're baptized, they say they will, you know, they can call their earthly father daddy, and they can call him papa, they can call him anything. But the wonderful thing is once they're baptized, they can they call God Father. They call God their Father, and rightly so. First thing our Lord instructed to his apostles was uh, in praying was to call God, call upon God as your Father, our Father who art in heaven. And a newly baptized child has a right to do that, actually, recognize God as a child's father. So you want the child to grow up with that understanding. Um, a child should understand that it has a father here on earth and has a father in heaven. And the eternal father who loves the child, who gave that child existence, who created the soul in his own image, and by grace now, in his own likeness. Um, so the child uh, has that supernatural life in, in it, and that's what the parent wants to cultivate. Um... You know, you want to teach your children good habits when they're very young, even before they understand the importance of these things, or even the purpose of them. So that when the child comes to the age of reason, the child will have all these good habits already in his favor. He'll already be doing what is right, even before he understands exactly the reason for it. And if you give him that habitus or that, that uh, practice of doing the right thing, when he reaches the age of reason, he'll he'll be enlightened to understand really the, um, the, the you know, not just the reason for doing it because it makes other people happy, but to understand that, that it makes God happy, that it pleases God, and you want your children to grow up with that understanding. I would like to see, just as a personal preference, I'd like to see every home have not only crucifixes in every room, but I'd like to see every home have a, a statue of Christ the King, really. You know, we, we have, uh, from the example and work of Father Matteo Crolli Buevi, uh, we have the ceremony of the enthronement of the Sacred Heart in the home. It's important those children um, be conceived in a home consecrated to the Sacred Heart. We have, that when the child, you know, opens his eyes for the, and, uh, you know, and reaches the age of reason, you want that child to have been raised in that home, dedicated to the, uh, to the, uh, the Sacred Heart of our Lord and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. They go together, obviously. I mean, there was a time when, our, as I mentioned a number of times already, 
Our Lady's Immaculate Heart was our Lord's heart. Before his heart formed within him in her womb, uh, she shared her heart with him, and her heart beat for both of them until that moment when his newly formed heart uh, beat for its first time and continued until the last beat on the cross. Uh, before that even happened, Our Lady's heart was his heart. And so it is only right and fitting that the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary be enthroned together in the home. And um, you want your children raised in such a home. But our Lord's heart is the heart of a king. I mean, he, he is rightly the king. And if you read the ceremony of consecration of the home to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, you find Father Matteo often refers to that the kingship of Christ, that he comes as king in our home. And so <clears throat> I'd like to see more and more the, uh, the, the image of our Lord as king in every Catholic home, especially these days, when we see such terrible things happening in our society, precisely because of the rejection of the kingship of Christ. Make, we can't make any mistake about that, can't doubt it, and we need our children to understand it. It's the rejection of the kingship of our Lord that is, that is behind all of these evils we're witnessing before our eyes today. All the corruption, all the perversion follows from the rejection of the kingly, sacred heart of Jesus. Uh, so, you know, it's important, I think, to, to instill that in the child's mind, that their king is our Lord, that their father is God, the Father in heaven, that that's where their allegiance has to be. And uh, that they not only want to believe that, they want to profess it right now. They want to be very, I mean, I think you were mentioning last week, and, and well, it was well said, that children are not inhibited about these things. They have a natural tendency to talk about the things that are important to them. Um, you mentioned your daughter wanting to teach the next-door neighbor the Hail Mary. As soon as she discovered that to her, I guess, shocked that the neighbor didn't know the Hail Mary. She probably figures everybody in the world knows the Hail Mary, or certainly should. So uh, that's how children are. So, um, so you want the children to grow up not only believing it, but learning to profess it with a, a great deal of love and, and uh, enthusiasm, even. Not <clears throat> uh, audacity characterizes the modernists, so I wouldn't say audacity... I would say enthusiasm. They profess their faith with enthusiasm. So, um, one thing, one thing's for sure, though, that um, they they need to grow up at home in loving homes, where they know they are loved, when they where they learn to love, because we have to be taught to love by word and example and by grace. Uh, it's a lesson we have to learn, and the only way we can learn it really is. Um, by being not only surrounded by it, but you might say even saturated and engulfed by it. We need to grow up in that. In that, uh, The whole atmosphere of the love of God. People might think, well, you know, yes, the world is, is right now just wallowing in its, in its filth. It's true, but you can't shield or, or somehow... You, you can't, um, what's the word, isolate your children from the world. They have to live in the world eventually. So it's a mistake to try to protect them from these things. The church says, St. John Bosco says, that's absolutely horrifically false. You have an obligation to protect your children from these things. Yes, of course, the children are going to be into the world. They're going, to be, they're going to be in the world. They're going to be driving down the highway. They're going to see its billboards. They're going to go to the supermarkets and hear its music. Um, and they're going to hear neighbors talking, and sometimes they'll hear the neighbors using some foul language or even blasphemy. But uh, St. John Bosco's point, as the church's point was, <coughs> you need to develop the conscience of your children <coughs> so that when they are exposed to these evil things, they recognize them as being evil. And they find them not attractive, but abhorrent and disgusting and disgraceful. But also, even then, 
not abhorrent, disgusting, and disgraceful in such a way that they would be moved to hate or despise those who are doing them. You want your children's consciences to be formed so deeply in the faith that they pity those who are talking like that and acting like that, uh, so much that they, they can think of nothing more than pray, mostly praying for them and trying to set a good example for them. And in a sense, uh, having the heart of a missionary to reach out to them, for them, uh, to like, almost like seeing somebody in a mud puddle or even a quicksand, you're trying to get them out. You know, you rescue them. Uh, you're not cheering their demise. Um, that takes a lot of work on a parent's part to cultivate that faith and that hope and that charity in the child. <clears throat> that a child um, has that strength then at some time in his life to recognize this is wrong, I don't find this attractive, I don't want this, um, I, I reject these evil things, absolutely. I um, am hurt uh, that these things are offending my Lord and my God whom I love, my Father, my Savior, and uh, they think of making reparation to God. They personally um, don't take offense insofar as they realize the evil of this is not because it offends me, it's because it offends God. Sin is not that something offends me, it's it offends God. And again, that's not the modern mentality. The modern mentality is, if I find something offensive to me, that's horrible. If it offends God, who cares? That's the modern mentality. Unfortunately, it has affected some of our traditional Catholics who, who will get all excited about their football team, their basketball team, or whatever. But if they hear blasphemies against God, they just shrug it off as though it doesn't matter to them. Why would it matter to anyone? It should be just the opposite. Well, to form children uh, correctly, to, to uh, and that's what you're asking about, how to do that, I know. To form their minds and their hearts correctly, that's, that's the major task of parents today. To do that, they have to actually um, build a kind of castle. Their homes have to be like a castle. You heard the expression, a man's home is his castle. Well, what they meant by that was, <clears throat> the man is the king. The Lord of the Master of uh, the Manor, <clears throat> and everyone you know snaps to his commands and goes to please him. <clears throat> the Protestant idea of the divine right of kings—it's not a Catholic idea. That's a Protestant idea of the divine right of kings. But a man's home should be his castle, insofar as the father of the home should realize, "I need a castle to protect my children against those who would hurt them." And right now, there are a lot of people out there who'd like to get, hurt those children. I mean, it's like the whole world is being taken over by the pedophiles and by those who want to basically feast on a, on a diet of, of, of children and uh, innocence being destroyed. I mean, we hear so much today, you, you know, we were talking about the Balenciaga uh, horror, and we realize that there's a whole industry behind this. This is not an accident. They were caught at it, and you know, made the pretense of apologizing as though, oops, oh, this should never have happened. How could this be? But we know there's an actual entire, well, what should I say, world behind them right now that is pushing for exactly that, the corruption of children. Um, and it's evil. It's all evil. I mean, you, you've probably read about the, uh, the rich and the powerful. When I talk about the rich, I'm talking about the the billionaires and the millionaires clubs who discovered that uh, children's blood can give them a, a new lease on life and even maybe the promise of immortality. So there's actually a market now for the blood of little children. There's a market now to get transfusions with the blood of little children with the idea that their little children's blood is going to give me my youth back. Um, is it horrible? Yeah more horrible than anything of Dracula <clears throat> or his vampires, right? Um, I mean, there were the vampire diaries who tried to make vampirism almost normal or even attractive, right? There's a whole, again, a whole uh, 
Well, the world is being taken over by these people. They're using their money and their power, their places of influence to move the whole world into this horror show. And their purpose is to feast on the innocence of the children, corrupting them and devouring them like Satan, like, like Saturn devouring his children. Are you familiar with that? The Titans, Saturn, devouring his children. <clears throat> One of the black uh, pictures painted by Goya is of, Sa of Saturn devouring his children. It's, uh, it's uh, emblematic, I would say, of the, of the present day. <clears throat> Place of the face of Saturn. <clears throat> Put the face of any Democrat of your choice these days. Devouring the children with abortion in order to secure their place in politics. But anyway, maybe I'm digressing a little bit. Doesn't happen very often, I know. <laughs> but back to the point, you, you know, you parents have to uh, fortify your homes as castles. Build a moat. Get a drawbridge. Put a portcullis in. Uh, you know, raise the moat, lower the portcullis, and, and close those gates against evil things. Let your children grow up in a happy and a holy home. Give them that childhood. <clears throat> Protect them as much as you can while you are preparing them for what's on the other side of, of that moat. You're preparing them for what's outside those walls of your home. But at least give them a chance to realize what it is to live in a society, even if it's only your own family, <clears throat> the, the beginning of all human society in your family. Let your children grow up in a Catholic home with loving parents and a loving God and a loving Savior and a loving Mother in Heaven, let them know what that is and let them find their home to be a haven from all of the, the storm and the, uh, you know, not just brewing, but, but raging outside. So your children love to go home. They love to go home. They love to be home. That's where they want to be. That's their first choice. <clears throat> the only place that could rival it would be the church that they want to be there with their Lord and Savior and their King. Um, the home and the church should be basically the the castle and the keep. You can even refer to the church as the keep, the, the innermost heart of the castle. Um, where when all else fails, there God is served, right? So we need the gospel, and we need the keep right now. Uh, how to do that? Well, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are books on raising Catholic children right now, I know. But I, I don't know that any of them, I don't know of any, that really dwells on that theme of how we can make our homes like a castle and a fortress uh, in which our children can live um, happy and holy lives have a childhood of innocence. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there's some very basic things that you would do. Well, I'll tell you what. I've been expatiating here for a while. Uh, you seem to be uh, willing to uh, express some very good thoughts at time, time, time. What would you do as like the first practical steps to uh, provide that haven for children? Because you have children and you're doing that just right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say the first practical thing is don't have a television in your home. You read my mind. Which, which <laughs> I read yours too. Um, I think that's that's uh, talking about keeping the world out while the, the some of the most the, the easiest way for the spirit of the world, the things of the world, to enter your home are through the television, through radio, through the internet. Um, so um, I mean, I think the Internet obviously can can be justified to some extent. I don't. Um, I've personally never really seen too much of a justification for for a television, um, radio, really. Even um, I think those things could very easily be kept out of a Catholic home and not um, not not many sacrifices made there. But um, I think that would be probably the the biggest thing is just keeping those those channels through which the spirit of the world can enter your home. Keep those channels blocked if you have to have some of them in your home, then make sure that they are severely, seriously regulated and never um, you know, just exposed to free access so that any of that um, modern-day sewage from the world can enter into your home.
Um, I think that's one big, easy, practical thing that, that everyone could just start with that. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a good... <clears throat> now, have you heard, uh, Father Greenwald, have you heard me or other traditional priests warn the Catholic families, Catholic parents to, <clears throat> if they're going to have televisions and they're going to have internet access, that they have to guard them very carefully. If they're going to allow their children to go on the internet to, let's say, research, they have to watch it very, very carefully and regulate it very carefully. Have you heard us warn about that? Yes, Father. You've, you've made, I think, often made the analogy of uh, the, these things are like a loaded gun. How successful have we been? Our parents doing that? Some of them, Father. I'd like to know who. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure, I would hope that some of them are. Uh, there are those who think they are, and they're not. There are those who think, oh, yeah, we're, we're very tight. We've told our children, you know, uh, what the rules are. But, you know, children being children, they're tempted. It's like the forbidden fruit. And I think many, many parents who think they're doing a great job of protecting their children, who would never think of taking driving their children downtown into the, like, bad crime-ridden parts of town, dropping them out on, on a, on a uh, curb and saying, uh, kids, you have fun, I'll be back in four hours. They would never dream of that. But they're doing that, essentially. Uh, leaving their kids alone with that. Imagine leaving a child alone with a 23-foot India python, a hungry python, saying, you kids, uh, have fun. Uh, good luck, you know, we'll be back. Well, it's when you tune your back, you're leaving them with that python. It's hungry. It wants them. It'll swallow them up in a minute or a second if it can. It'll curl it around. It'll, it'll constrict them and choke the life out of them. It happens so quickly. And, you know, I mean, how, how long does it take a child to find a way, uh, an opening that a parent gives, to get on that Internet and explore when he or she is not supposed to? How long would it take a child... Uh, to turn that channel on and just start watching, whatever, right? And how long does it take for that child to be injured, hurt by that, to get images in the mind, in the imagination, that will stay with that child as long as he or she lives? And they can be very disturbing and very intriguing also, um, and, and cause all kinds of rather morose thoughts and macabre thoughts in the child's mind, fascinating the child. <clears throat> with things that the child sees, doesn't take long, seconds even, to get an image like that in the child's mind. It can be very distressing and very, very corrupting. You might say, well, the child is too young to understand what's going on. True, but maybe the, the child knows there's something going on and finds it very fascinating and wonders, what's this all about? It really does some serious damage. I don't know that there are parents alive who can be careful enough, um, uh, especially when they when they get children who are in their early teenage years. I mean, they're 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 really exploring, you know. And um, I don't know that there are any parents who are shrewd enough, clever enough, vigilant enough, um, holy enough to uh, successfully protect their children against these things. They might as well be allowing, as St. Peter says, a roaring lion to wander through their home, going about seeking someone to devour, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the Internet goes. So, I mean, unless the parent can actually sit down with the child and actually teach the child how to research the Internet, even then, I mean, you know what, stuff pops out of all over the place. I mean, uh, they're looking to market their wares every... It, it's almost impossible to, uh, to, to, to really govern that Internet. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, that concerns me very much. Because uh, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a child who has not been damaged or injured by something they've seen online, even in the most vigilant home or on television. You know, and parents say, well, we let our kids watch the Super Bowl, but we shut up all the commercials. 
Well, if you got to shut off the commercials, it tells you there's a problem already. And we shut off the halftime show, too. Well, yeah, okay, that's fine. But, you know, they know they're missing something, and they wonder why. <laughs> you know? Uh, and they show up, and there are other kids. The kid next door is watching all these things. And they're going to hear about these things. So if your kid isn't watching the television uh, at your home like this, when they go to the kid next door, their home, they're going to be watching it over there. Uh, that's why you have to, uh, first of all, teach your child, you know, why. And uh, then, you know, when your child is not even in the walls of the castle, you're still, you've still got to be concerned about them. And you've got to train your child in the hopes that you can trust them to do what you know that they should uh, out of love for God, out of love for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a terrible feeling for a parent to raise a child all those years and get them to be 13, 14, 15 years old and the parent to realize, I can't trust my son. I can't trust my daughter. I just can't trust them. A terrible thing. And sometimes the kids will say that. You don't trust me, Dad. You don't trust me, Mom. And as I mentioned, you, you do say, well, I do trust you. I trust you to be a 13-year-old boy. I trust you to be a 14-year-old girl. And I, I know in the world today that, that puts you at risk. <clears throat> and I love you, but I do trust you, but I trust you to be, you know, a, a, a human being, conceived of the original sin. I should know. <laughs> I had to have you baptized. And uh, I know the battles you're fighting. And uh, you need me to help fight that f with you and for you. <clears throat> but um, with some children, um, they're just, you know, we're born rebels. And some of us, by the grace of God, manage to rein that in. But not everybody. You know, there's some who are just, just have a rebellious temperament about them. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the ones you've really got to protect the most insofar as you can. Father, are there any um, warning signs that, that, a, that a parent could look for? How do, how do they know if they're doing a, a successful job raising a traditional Catholic child? How do they know that there is a, is a problem? Is there any, any sort of warning sign that they should be looking for? If something's going wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I'd say if, the kid, if, if a child starts being sneaky... That was one, one sign that St. John Bosco always, always looked at. <clears throat> he said, if you see a child as being devious <clears throat> and being sneaky and trying to conceal from you what he's up to, <coughs> excuse me, that's a very serious red flag. St. John Bosco, you know, was very, very concerned about the souls of all the kids, all the boys he had. But there were certain youngsters he would not tolerate in his schools. I mean, the, the, the boys in his schools were real boys, and they had their faults, you know, but there were certain faults that St. John Bosco realized you just can't tolerate because <coughs> these faults are so corrupting that they will destroy everything you're working for, including the, the, the good boys, the relatively good boys. And um, being sneaky and being impure. And often the two of them go together. If a child is concealing something from you, it's because it's something that he knows he should be ashamed of, and or it's something that you would be ashamed of, that you would be upset about that he was doing or looking at. So if he's concealing uh, from you uh, whatever it might be, um, then that, that just shows you this is something I need to know. It's the things you don't want to know that you need to know. Um, and uh, so, you know, you have to, uh, unfortunately, uh, maybe get out the magnifying glass, the forensics uh, crime forensics lab kit, and and find a way to get to the truth, and um, but I mean the tragic thing is if you if you find that I I can't get the truth from my son or my daughter, I have to find some way to either extract it from them, or I have to go around them to get the truth from others who know or who can find out for me. 
That's a terrible position for a parent to be in, as you can imagine. And the older the child gets, the more, the more terrible it is, really, because the things they're concealing are probably much more, more serious as they get older. <clears throat> is your child and, uh, going out with friends, are they drinking? Do they say they're going to play putt-butt golf and they go off and see some R-rated movie? Uh, are your friends the type who blaspheme, curse, wear, smoke, tobacco, or worse, you know? Uh, and, um, you know, you're trying to keep track of that. Some, some of the children, hopefully, at least some of the children you might raise, you could have real confidence that they would never go in for that. Others, you can't really have that confidence. So you really have to monitor and, and watch them very carefully and let them know it really is a matter of trust, uh, that, that it really is, but uh, that, and you really want to trust them. But if they're being deceptive of you, you have to let them know right away that you, your trust in them is being undermined by them, that they are attacking your trust in them and uh, that they need your trust in order to have the liberties to do certain things without surveillance. <laughs> and uh, if, if they have destroyed your trust or undermined your trust, you're not going to be able to allow them to do as much <clears throat> as they would like, but you want them to realize it's because of what they're doing, not because of your wish, but what they're forcing you to do. <clears throat> Uh, to exercise greater and greater control over them. It's hard to do, though, because, again, the rebels don't want to take responsibility. They want all the rights and no responsibilities for anything that happens. But again, it's part of the parent's job to get past that and help that child out of that, to enable that child to understand the role of responsibility and rights and uh, liberties and so on. Um, it's, it's a very difficult job. It's the art of arts to raise a child, to form their conscience. It's much harder than chiseling day and night with an iron chisel and a wooden hammer on a block of marble and producing the pieta. It's much more difficult to form one child's conscience than it is to perform, to you know, produce all of these greatest works of art that we, that we travel hundreds of miles to see, thousands of miles to see in museums, just right in your own home. The hardest task any artisan has to do is to form the conscience of his child. Mm. So uh, it takes an enormous amount of prayer, enormous amount of sacrifice, enormous amount of patience, that's for sure. Yeah. Father, you, you mentioned surveillance. Um, is, there, is there such a thing as an invasion of, of a child's privacy by, by their parent? Does a parent have a right to know um, every single detail about everything that is going on in their child? A child life? has an, a parent has a, a not only a, a, a child, a parent, I'm sorry, has a right to know what a parent needs to know. <clears throat> a parent has a right to know what a parent has a need to know. And what a parent needs to know <clears throat> is what is of what is for the good of his child. He needs to know if his child is in danger. And so if he suspects that a child of his is in danger, and he just says, well, I have to respect my child's rights, so I, I don't dare you know, look, into this, look in this drawer and see what's in there, or I don't dare look in a diary and see what's written there, um, because my child uh, you know, is very insistent on his or her rights and, and privacy. Well, I'm sorry, it would be criminal for a parent, um, a criminally negligent for a parent to uh, suspect that his child is in serious moral or physical danger and just to absolve himself of responsibility because his child would be upset if he, if he went and looked, you know, and saw uh, what was happening there and found out the truth, especially if he fears that his child would be the last one to tell him the truth. So he not only has the right to know, he has a moral obligation to know. No, I mean, there are parents, I, admittedly, I mean, there are parents who can be helicopter parents, as they call them these days, 
and they can go overboard. But considering the dangers that are out there these days, I, I don't think our traditional Catholic parents, um, for the most part, are helicopter parents. I think they do respect the rights of privacy and so on, ordinarily, of each other or their parents. They want those rights for themselves. They respect them and others, including their children. But, um, I mean, if the neighbor next door doesn't answer the phone, the car is in the driveway. It's usually gone. They're usually at work or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's the, the strange so sounds coming from the home. And you have all these signs that there's something unusual happening here. What decent neighbor would not at least go over and inquire, are you okay? Are you okay in there? And if nobody answers and they found the door unlocked, they'd kind of peek in and say, hello, Mrs. Schnickelfritz, are you okay? You know, what decent neighbor wouldn't do that? And that's for, you know, a neighbor who might, they might not even get along with. You know, in charity, they're concerned what has happened to this person. They may find him lying on the floor, passed out, or who knows? That's what they're afraid of. Or in the middle of a home invasion, who knows? They have to be careful. But all the more reason why it's necessary that somebody check and, and, and you know, make sure. Well, if, if, you, if we would do that for the neighbor or a complete stranger, actually, if you saw somebody lying, you know, on the gutter and there was a, like a pool of blood around them or something, I think anybody, a decent person would stop and say, my goodness, you know, this person needs help. Oh, in your own home, in your own child? And you, you have warning signs that my child is in danger? And you're going to say, well, gee, I'd check on the neighbor or I'd check on some guy, you know, uh, on the sidewalk, you know, who has fallen and hurt like that. But my child, oh, no, no I, I better let my child just uh, work it out themselves. And I, I uh, don't want to trespass, you know. It's your child, you know, you have an you're answerable to God for this child's body and soul. And... Uh, the child needs to know that, and you need to make sure the child understands that. If the child doesn't understand that by the time the child is 13, maybe the child needed to be informed of that when the child was 12 or 11 or 9, you know, that this is the way it's going to be. <clears throat> so get used to it, you know. If I fear you're in danger, and I fear you're, you're hiding something for you and not leveling with me, I am going to be proactive and I'm going to act like your parent, because I am. And I'm responsible to God for what I do, not to you. <laughs> Let them know early on. And then whatever their friends may tell them, you know, they may have friends say, well, that's terrible. Your, your mom is awful. Your dad is a tyrant. <clears throat> well, maybe by that time you will convince your kids that the reason you are willing to take those steps is because you love them. And maybe... By that time, your child will be mature enough to say, well, my dad does love me enough. He does care. If I'm in trouble, he's going he's gonna to find out what's going on and do everything he can to save me and help me. And maybe your child will realize, well, you know, I, I wish other people's dads and moms loved them as much as my mom and dad loved me, you know, <laughs> and would go through that much trouble for them as they would go for me, mm -hmm. go through for me. You'd hope that, that they would begin to, to see it that way. Yeah. Well, Father, um... This has all been very good and practical and helpful. Uh, thank you very much for all of this. I well, there's so much more. I mean, volumes have been written. Yeah. And Tom, I mean, you yourself could give um, lots of good advice, too. Maybe you write a book about it someday. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe uh, your daughters will write a book about it. Yeah. The one who was teaching the Hail Mary the next day. Um, but we, we also wanted to uh, maybe just spend a, a few minutes on, on Advent, Father. Maybe we could tie the, tie the two together. How, how can a parent... Mm -hmm. Um, today, teach teach their their child uh, the uh, the necessity of Advent, um, the true meaning of Christmas. You know, it's very easy these days with the commercialization of, of Christmas to um, turn into these kind of you know frenzy gift giving uh, uh, things. So, how can a parent today teach their child the, the proper meaning of Christmas and Advent? Well, it's true. I mean, the way we celebrate so-called Christmas in this country and actually now around the world because it's been so secularized. It's by thinking 
in terms of gift giving, we have to go and you know, go to stores and buy things. We have to be thinking about what we're going to give to other people. Um, that's de rigueur. We have to get the Christmas card list going. We have to get all that work to have. It's a frenzy of activity to try to get all those uh, niceties taken care of. To decorate, we have to bake, we have to parties, we have to do, go to parties. All these things, it's like this frenzy of activity. And there are many people who tell you they kind of dread this, you know, because it's so frenetic and mm -hmm. so exhausting. Mm -hmm. By the time Christmas Day comes, they say, enough, enough. We're, we're sick and tired of celebrating. Well, Christmas Day is when we should start celebrating. Um, until then, it's Advent. It's the anticipation of Christ's coming. It's a time of, uh, well, it's not a penitential time officially, but it's a time of recollection and, and a time of penance. In other words, putting away the sins. St. John the Baptist says, uh, make the rough ways plain, right? And um, it's clear that we're supposed to reform and be ready to receive our Lord. You know, when St. John the Baptist talked about that, when he gave that imagery about uh, lowering the hills, raising the valleys, making the rough way the crooked way straight and the rough way plain, he was actually alluding to something that we don't necessarily do, but we can understand. That is, when uh, some great personages, <clears throat> the king, uh, for example, a prince would come to a village, <clears throat> the people would actually roll out the red carpet. They didn't have a red carpet, though. But the way they rolled out the red carpet was they prepared the way for him to come. Literally. <clears throat> they would go and they would repair the, 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 <clears throat> the way. I mean, the, 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 the road, the street. They didn't have asphalt. <clears throat> they didn't have all the niceties that we have, giving a smooth ride. <clears throat> but they tried to smooth it out as well as they could. And they would try to have this kind of almost causeway built for this great personage to come to their city as a sign of welcome and respect. And so when St. John the Baptist talks about each and every one of us um, making the crooked ways straight and the rough ways plain and flat, it's simply a way of saying, prepare to receive the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, prepare yourself for that. And Advent is a time of preparation for that. A time of anticipation. How do you actually celebrate Advent worthily for the mind of a child? Well, you inculcate in your child the idea of this anticipation for the great day, Christmas Day, when our Lord is born. You could actually... You know, inculcate in the mind of the child. Remember, we're li reliving that time before Jesus actually was born. But uh, Jesus actually came into the world when the angel Gabriel came to Mary. And so we realize that Jesus is here and um, that Mary will have the baby and give birth to the baby. I mean, kind of explain that in a nice way. Her child. But you know, we're looking for Jesus' birthday here. And that's what we're going to celebrate. And we have a lot of preparation to do to get ready for that. And so these are the things we need to do to get ready for that great day. <clears throat> now, some of these children would understand that. I mean, they, you know, any child with a sibling, younger siblings, would have some kind of recollection of you know, mom and dad coming home with, you know, their little brother, little sister, and how special that was. Um, so the idea might not be that that foreign to them. Um, at least, you know, if you have children who are 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, they probably can relate to that. And you have preparations to make. And um, one of the ways you can do that uh, to instill in, in the children the concept of this and the awareness of this preparation is by having the Advent wreath in the home and lighting the Advent wreath before the family rosary. Obviously, praying the family rosary is essential. 
it's not a, a luxury, it is a necessity, okay? Um, that the family evening be built around that rosary. And the mother and father should do that without fail. And insofar as the children can, as they come along, insofar as they can participate, they should be allowed to participate uh, in the family rosary. Obviously, they're not going to, the little ones are not going to be able to make it through five decades of the rosary at first, but you let them say what prayers they can yeah. uh, to get used to the idea and let them realize it's kind of a privilege to stay up and pray with you to show how grown up they are. So rather than them thinking, oh, I don't want to do this, if they grow up thinking, well, gee, if I can pray a decade or two or three or four or five of the rosary, and I can do that with mom and dad, and they let me stay up because of that, a lot of children would kind of think that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? uh, but uh, you don't expect them to do more than a little child can do, though. You, know, you don't expect them to kneel ramrod straight when they're three years old for five decades of the rosary. That would be torture for them, and they would learn to hate it. So, but they, they like to stay up, and they like to be with you. And uh, you can use that for their advantage, their, their benefit. But in, in any case, so, you know, you, maybe you can't light the, the um, Advent wreath 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the Sundays, the weeks of Advent. But to light the Advent candle uh, during the family rosary, would be certainly appropriate and have it burning during that time to um, then also you know before uh, meals you have the standard prayer bless us the Lord and these thy gifts but to read the oration from the Sunday Mass the collect from the Sunday Masses of Advent are very beautiful and um, they are prayed during the Masses of the time throughout the week afterwards. So for a mother or a father to read, or one of the older children even, to read that prayer from the Collect of the Mass for the previous Sunday, the first, second, third, fourth Sundays of Advent, at the table, would only take an, uh, maybe an extra minute, really. But uh, it says what the Church wants us to be aware of. Uh, it kind of consecrates the week to that Sunday Mass of, of Advent and carries it forward throughout, throughout the Advent season. So I certainly recommend that. Obviously, it's a nice idea to uh, set up the tree, leave it undecorated until the great day has arrived, but it's a reminder we're anticipating this, you know? One can say, well, we decorate it in stages. Well, we're going to decorate the lower part, then the next part, the next part, and finally, Christmas Day, we'll put the star on top, or something like that, you know, just to build up this sense of their anticipation of the, of the great day of our Lord's birth. Uh, the presents, putting them under the tree, eh, I wouldn't do that. Uh, you know, kids get awful curious and fascinated by that. Uh, and it, it, I think it's a distraction more than anything for them. You know, it's not about the presence. You don't want them thinking it's about the presence. Um, and uh, you want them to keep things in the proper perspective. Um, and as far as the treats, well, the treats uh, should uh, certainly be limited to Sunday. Sundays are never days of penance, as you know. They're miniature Easter Sundays. Um, so there's really no such thing in the Catholic um practice as fasting on Sundays, uh, practicing mortifications on Sundays. It's a day of, of, of rejoicing, <clears throat> like, a, like a holy day, any holy day. <clears throat> but uh, again, you know, to teach your children, well, we'll limit the, the, the treats to Sundays and we're not going to, you know, uh, indulge, uh, except for special occasions. Of course, we have the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, as a holy day during uh, Advent, so that's perfectly legitimate to celebrate on that day. Uh, but you understand what I mean. Right. You also want to cultivate in the child's mind, too, by the way, uh, what can we do for the baby Jesus? We want to do something for him. There's some very beautiful Catholic practices uh, 
Of course, having a lovely creche or manger scene, a presepio, uh, with figures that are very attractive, you know, you, starting with the Christ child. But you don't put the Christ child in the manger until Christmas Day. <coughs> so you can uh, put up the manger, the actual structure. Uh, it's empty, right? The emptiness of it is a reminder again of anticipation that something is going to be arriving here. And then um, at some point you can put Blessed Mother and St. Joseph there. Of course, the ox and the donkey belong there, you know. And um, then, appropriately enough, at certain times, as the last week of Advent progresses and you're approaching the Christmas uh, day, you know, you begin to people the creche scene with uh, the important actors. The kings don't arrive until January 6th, and uh, the shepherds won't arrive until Christmas morning. So you want our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph to be there with a donkey and the mule, uh, actually, uh, and, the, and the ox, almost solitary. And then, I mean, the, the great moment when the Christ child comes in, you could even have your children, you know, bring, bring the Christ child in, lay him, lay him in the manger. There are certain things you can do as families to stress, you know, the joy of the Christ child's coming. Uh, let the shepherds appear, uh, then be replaced by the kings on January 6th. Uh, it's dynamic. It, it gives the children something to focus on. Um, I mean, even Protestants understand this. You know, they, they condemn the idea of having figures and statues. And yet, when it comes to Christmas time, they understand the value of having these figures and the lesson it teaches the children. I wish that they would then realize, well, you know, maybe Catholics are right. Maybe statues in general are not a bad thing as long as we, you know, use them for their correct purposes. We're not worshiping them as idols. We're using them as instructional tools, you know, um, to increase the, the fervor and the faith of our children. But anyway, that's another subject, isn't it? Um, but even there, I mean, the children can prepare the uh, the manger where the Christ child is going to lie lay by uh, uh, well in some cases they have parents have the kids write out their good works that they do the sacrifices they've made on strips of like yellow paper and cut them out and lay them in there like so many pieces of straw for the Christ child to lie in in the manger to soften his uh, bed there I know we do that at the school and places there are also Advent calendars that are uh, traditional, that you can open day by day of the month and see a, a scripture passage pertaining to the birth of the Savior, prophecies about his coming. And these are also very instructive. Children really anticipate, you know, opening that little door and seeing what's behind it. And then you can read what the scripture says about prophesying about our Lord coming. It makes an impression on them. Some child children might even I want to memorize those. And to get them to memorize passages of sacred scriptures, that's a wonderful thing. Our children are going to need that. They're going to need that going forward. So, in any way, in any case, now, there are a lot of things a, a parent can do to cultivate the right Advent uh, mentality in his children and to uh, encourage in that child a devotion to the coming Savior so that when the child the child, uh, the Christ child's birth does come on December 25th. The child then is prepared to celebrate his birth worthily. And as a Catholic, and we realize that the actual celebration takes place over the 40 days from December 25th to February 2nd. That's Christian Christmas, right? I preferred to the modernization or, or commercialization of Advent as an ersatz or anti-Christmas. And uh, unfortunately, it actually destroys the whole idea of Christmas in the mind and heart of the child. It's a ter terrible thing to do. We have to, again, in our castles, in the havens that we're trying to build for the children,
uh, we have to, uh, you know, give them a real Christmas and uh, not, not allow for them to uh, be seduced by the toxic Christmas of the world, mm -hmm. right, so to speak. Anyway, so uh, anyway, I, sorry for going on here, but I hope something I said was of value. I mean, you must have, you must have things that you do in your family that I haven't even mentioned yet with regard to the Advent season. Um, well, well, we've we've definitely um, tried to make the Advent wreath um, a very central central thing. We um, we've we've always lit that during the family dinner uh, at the family dinner table and praying the collect of the mass with that too. We found that to be to be very good, but. Um, I think uh, one big thing is just <laughs> just avoiding um, the, the, that you just see it everywhere that this kind of Christmas um, flurry just kind of takes over society everywhere you go. You already start seeing Christmas mm -hmm. decorations and Christmas lights everywhere. I think just kind of like <laughs> trying to suppress that and mm -hmm. and pump the brakes on that a little bit. I think mm -hmm. is um, is is a very very important thing to do and just trying to not not celebrate prematurely. Um, what, what do you think of the Christmas crafts that, uh, you know, as suitable for Advent? Like, they have these various, various projects, you know, children, you have the, the colored paper and the, the glue and the glitter and all that. Uh, do you think that would detract from the anticipation of Christmas? Do you think, I mean, perhaps even the children could invest some time and effort into doing these Christmas crafts, which is good for them to do. I mean, the, the fine motor skills are always nice to co to develop. But um, what about approaching that with the Christmas crafts that they would do as making a gift for their siblings, making a gift for mom and dad? Of course, you're helping them do it, so there's no secrecy there. Making a gift for grandma or grandpa, uh, for aunts and uncles, or their friends at school or in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, is there any problem with that? No, I don't. I don't I, th I think that's that's very good. I've um, never been known to be a very crafty person myself, personally. But I, I've been um, uh, very, I, I think, uh, happily surprised by the amount of crafts that um, that that my children have done at the at the school here, just in their yeah. in their classes. It seems every day um, there's some new little. Uh, thing that they, they've worked up. They've had the the advent calendars um, that, that some of them have been working through and just little various crafts. And uh, today on the feast day of St. Nicholas, they had a, a corresponding uh, little St. Nicholas puppet type doll that, that they made. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. very, very neat. Um, I'm always kind of just blown away and, and fascinated by the, uh, the creativity of the of the teachers. And you can tell there's a lot of um, thought and a lot of love that goes into that. And I've always mm. found that to be very, very nice. Mm. And uh, I've always appreciated that. Well, you know, there are a lot of ethnic Christmas customs, too, mm -hmm. like St. Lucy wearing the crown with the actual lit candles, right? And she's, uh, there's this procession. Uh, St. Lucy's feast day takes place during, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, the Advent season. And there's so many um, uh, just her heritage Christmas practices. They, there are whole books written about them. And uh, the posada, for example, uh, you know, during the Advent season, but the, the, the Mexican or Spanish, Hispanic posada is a very important part of the Advent season. We actually had some nights of the posada here years ago as part of our church. You probably weren't even here yet when that happened. Um, and it was actually very charming, uh, inspiring, uh, especially to see the those with that Spanish heritage in our uh, chapel, you know, so happy to, to be able to do that <laughs> and to introduce it yeah. to the other Catholics who might be our Scandinavian origin or something. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, you know, those, those, those are all very, very blessed and wonderful practice, Catholic practices that the modernists and the the worldlings are trying to annihilate and obliterate from the face of the earth, yeah. even from the memory. We can't let that happen, right? So we have to cultivate the true understanding of Advent in our children 
and <clears throat> not let it get bulldozed under by the world. And uh, and the thing is, we can do it. We can do it. So we may be very, you know, unhappy with what's happening around us in the world today. But the fact is, we can't let that distract us from doing what we can. And this is something we certainly can do. Um, I was thinking for years, we need to um, um, get bumper stickers made. You know, the Christmas season lasts from begins December 25th, lasts till February 2nd. The 40 days of Christmas begin on December 25th, or something like that. Just to get the message across that true Christmas begins with the birth of Christ on December 25th. That's what Christmas is really all about. Uh, just to try to get that message out there. Um, I don't know if I'd go with the t-shirts, uh, but uh, bumper stickers maybe, and getting that sign up everywhere. Uh, insofar as we can get the message across to try to retrieve Christmas again. Um, you know, once, once you detach the celebration of Christmas from the actual day of our Lord's birth, then everything else falls apart. Everything else unravels and becomes like what we've got now. You know, necessarily, it's like pulling the, 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 the linchpin out and everything just, or taking the stitch out and everything un unravels. You know? So we have to insist that the Christmas season begins on December 25th, <clears throat> not a moment before. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and uh, that's when the celebration begins, and it lasts for 40 days. And we have to keep celebrating those 40 days. <laughs> Can't get tired of that. <laughs> celebrating the birth of Christ during that time. Yep. Well, Father, thank you. I um, wish you a very blessed and profitable Advent season. Yourself. Well, thank you, Tom. I wish you the same. Yep. Uh, thank you, Father. I know you had some other things you wanted to talk about. We'll hopefully That's get okay. to them next uh, Next time, too, yes, and uh, it'll be interesting to hear what kind of comments you get about <clears throat> yes. what was said tonight. Yep. Thank you, Father, and thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. You consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.